Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, my name is Amy Potsick. Thank you for asking. <laughs> you're welcome. And you're in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. city of brotherly love. That is right. Yes, lovely place. But you're not from there. No, I was born in Chicago, and then we moved to the Philadelphia area when I was around two. So I did grow up in the Philly area. And then I lived all over the country and all the cities I wanted to live in in the States over the years, including San Francisco, where you and I have a connection. So And the Corcoran. And D.C., yeah. So essentially, I grew up out here in Philadelphia. I went to college in Indiana. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. And after that, I moved to D.C. So I moved to Washington, D.C., and... <laughs> Unlike most of the other 20-something-year-olds right out of college in D.C., I was like the only person I knew not working on Capitol Hill as an intern. Instead, I was teaching children, homeless children, and at-risk youth photography and after-school programs. So when I would introduce myself at any gathering, everyone would look at me cross-eyed like, you do what? They'd start out with, oh, who do you work for, right, in D.C.? And then I would be like, oh, I teach children photography and after-school programs. They'd be like, uh, you can't help my career. I don't have anything to talk to you about. <laughs> oh, yes. That is exactly what right? they were thinking. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. So I want to just jump right into it. So sure. I was looking through your website. You're an art advisor. Mm-hmm. Now, you, of course, you're a practicing artist yourself, and that's mm-hmm. all fine and good. But I'm most interested in some of these other things that you do, this art advising. The one that came up was something that came up on a previous conversation with Amanda Marchand, mm-hmm. who also went to San Francisco, yeah. about legacy planning. Right. Now, I, I had never heard of this before. I, it makes complete sense when I read it. but. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. How did we do it? Like, so, like, of course, I'm a practicing artist, and also, I even think about like my my parents. My family has a lovely art collection mm-hmm. that I can't inherit. My house is not big enough to take their entire collection. So, like, right. you know, legacy planning. What is it? How does it work? How do you, how do you navigate that? Right. Well, it's a really really important topic for artists. And I think that we all know the term estate planning. However, we don't think of, we, I think artists only think of that kind of planning for people with a lot of money. But artists have a lot of value in their artwork and in their practice and in the history of their career, that legacy planning is about creating the legacy in their lifetime that they want to see happen the way that they want their work remembered, cared for, stored, written about, talked about, remembered, you can control some of that in your lifetime as an artist. If you don't, what happens is an artist will pass away and their family is left with a studio, a lifetime of work, and no records to know what to do with any of it. And what happened is I was running an an organization. I was the executive director of an organization that also happened to have a larger population of older artists. So I started getting calls, you know, about every two weeks from a person who would call and say, 
my mother or my aunt was an artist. She passed away. There's a hundred paintings in the attic. Can I donate them to you? <laughs> Will you sell them for me? And I would just get these inquiries often enough that I started realizing this is a huge problem because not only does the family not know what to do with it, but also the artist didn't have the opportunity to shape the way their work would be seen and remembered because that's what a legacy is. It's how your work will be remembered. One of my greatest fears, okay, I'm exaggerating, but one of my fears is, is that after I'm dead, somebody's going to go into my studio and basically pull out some artwork that I thought was just trash and that it would never be good. I don't want anybody ever to see it. It was a simple test. It was a random thing. And they're going to put it out there as like a prominent piece by me. And it's like, no, 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 no. I thought that was junk. That should <laughs> never be seen. Correct. Don't like, so how do you take control over that? How do you make it like, I mean, without me sitting down and literally saying like, yes, no, like exhibit, trad you know, burn uh, for every piece. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, you kind of don't without doing what you just said. What you have to do as an artist is take responsibility for your collection of your work. And it needs to be documented so that what, what you want to think about with legacy planning for artists is it's about creating the remembrance and the significance of your work and how to handle the actual work itself over time. So for example, one of the things that I do with artists is just what you said is the, the biggest problem is they have a studio full of artwork from 30 years, maybe, or more. It's not labeled, it's in different boxes, if you ask you, you might remember the details, but if you're not there, no one would know what any of this, how to sort through any of this. So what a lot of legacy planning is, is first for me, is, is it's a conceptual and emotional issue first, okay? So when I talk to artists, in the beginning, it's figuring out what is important to you, what do you define as successful, what would make you feel like you accomplished something with your work and your career? And then how do we work towards making that goal possible? So for example, you might think all artists want the same thing. Like they all want to make money. They all want to be famous. They all want to be in history books. Well, not so. Well, but if we're talking about legacy planning, we're all dead. So like, what do we care at that point, really? Well, but you just said you do care because what if what if your your worst print of five prints is the one that gets exhibited and you're mortified because you would never let that thing out of your studio. That's clearly a work print. Just to be clear, I care right now, but after <laughs> I'm dead, I don't right. care. Well, that's true. I think what it is is what I what I have found is that artists universally want meaning. They want their career and their work to mean something. They want it to have made an impression and to not be in vain, honestly. So to figure out what is that impression, how does my work fit into the landscape of, of art when I'm alive, when I was alive, when I am alive now, and what do I want to happen to my artwork, and how do I want to help my family with that? now because i think when we're young you know and we're artists like you don't even sign things you like 
put things out there and it's just like gone into the ether. Like you don't pay any attention. You maybe aren't thinking about archivalness, things like that. But then you have a longer career and it requires you, unless you have a gallery who is a gallery or a dealer or someone who has shaped that career for you and is going to handle your estate when you're gone. This is for people who don't have that or on a very high level of legacy planning. Because what I found was most people feel like you do, and I feel like most of us in the art world feel at the mercy of the art world. We don't feel like we're in control. We don't feel like we are the masters of our destiny. We feel at the whims of this art world we sort of don't really understand, but wish we were further along in. So when I talk with artists about their legacy, I'm saying, what if you achieved that in your career would make you feel some level of satisfaction with your career, to feel like it has meaning? What are the signifiers of that for you? So for example, many artists have never published a book on their work, but really would love to do that. That's a great move as far as legacy planning is concerned, because you don't have to wait for someone anymore to give you an agreement to publish your work. You can self-publish a beautiful book. You can commission essays. You can get those books into collections. Books last way longer than an exhibition ever does. So that's, for example, that's a tool of legacy planning, for example. But there's an issue with that, like books, when it comes to that, like when it's published by a reputable publisher or by an institution or something, it has more gravitas in somebody's career than a self-published book. It does, but that's changing. Well, certainly we would all love for the Museum of Modern Art to commission a book and our personal retrospective in our lifetime. Yes. If that isn't going to occur and you would like to control scholarship around your work. Because I think one of the things artists don't realize is that there needs to be sufficient amount of information about you and your work for a someone to study in order for you and your work to continue to remain placed in the context. And so in a way it's generating the scholarship and the documentation of your own career instead of waiting for someone else to do it for you it's doing it for yourself so i should write in my journal more in order to have more stuff to put into like a library so people can then study my life yes you should yes exactly <laughs> well it's interesting because i think there are certain key elements to artists careers like materials like documentation a book is one a video or or documentary, an artist profile of some kind. A podcast. Yeah, those also, you used to wait for someone to invite you to do that. You no longer need to be invited to do that. So I think the, the general theme here in legacy planning is taking control of how you would like your work handled. You can't control what happens after you're gone. But the idea is to have the sense in your lifetime that you shape that view, you create the documentation that's necessary, and you organize your inventory of work so that it can be exhibited, sold, published, stored, donated properly. Because if you don't, 
what happens is your family ends up with a studio or an attic full of art, full of supplies. The family takes a, a piece here and there that they want and the rest, because no one will take it as a donation and no one will buy it, <laughs> then it, it gets tossed. It literally ends up in a dumpster. And it's absolutely a shame for that to happen when there are so many parts of an artist's life, not just their work, their studio, their studio equipment. There's some people, their their workspace and their equipment and the way they make their work is fundamental to who they are as an artist. So documenting that is very important. So it's it's more like if you think of yourself in the third person, like if you were an artist that you who was who was asking you for advice, or was what would you tell your best friend who's an artist whose work you admire, whose work you love, who thinks you think don't it's do it important. right away. Well, <laughs> but I think usually when we think of ourselves, we are too modest. We think like, where do I get off publishing a book on my work? Where do I get off making an artist profile? Who am I to do legacy planning? Who are you not to do legacy planning if you've been an artist for your entire career? Why would you not invest in that for yourself? Okay. I love what you're saying. Now, what you're saying talking about is basically planning for the future, not only the like the future while you're still alive, but potentially what you're, how you, you are going to be perceived and understood after your death. Now, I don't even know what I'm doing this weekend, so I find it rather difficult to theorize my future place in the art canon decades if not centuries from now so how do you actually do this right generally no one is able to sort of have that lens on themselves so what i do is in the very beginning of the process there's sort of a discovery conversation that we have i have a set series of questions that i go through with people to tease out what's actually important to them in their trajectory, in their career, in their artwork. What makes it special? What makes them, what are the highlights of their career? Um, why do they make art? What is singular to their voice? Whose career trajectories do they admire? There's a million things and they're, 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 very, they're very basic and kind of difficult to answer in the beginning because most artists haven't thought of those questions, but they're really illuminating. And then I can take the lens on that information and kind of reveal you to yourself in how you answered these questions. And then we work on what did this reveal? What really is important to you? And then we look at what's important and then what are the tools we can use to achieve that that is important to you? Because it, it varies greatly from artist to artist what actually would make them feel successful or meaningful. It's really very rarely about money. I know we all need to make a living. I oh, know it's all about money for me. Yeah, it's you, that's the funny part is like really most people Selling work is about recognition and the feeling that someone valued my work enough to spend money on it. That's really where the sales part feeds us. So if you're getting that recognition and those other things from other areas, that's less important. There are many artists who are very successful from a, a standpoint of accolades and sell very little work and vice versa. There's people yes, who sell Thomas Kincaid comes to mind. Yeah, or many artists I know sell Sorry, quite Thomas a bit of work. Kincaid. 
but others don't. And it's not based on the quality of their work. It isn't. Okay. But what I want to know is I literally want to know, okay, A, people hire you to help them do this. How much do you charge? And how long does this actually take? Because like in my mind, what I'm hearing from you, you know, coming around my family life obligations, job and all this, this sounds like years of work. It totally depends on the, the artist, on the client. I mean, to be perfectly honest, some people are so organized, even when they're coming to me, that there's, it's more about helping them organize a plan and they're going to carry it out. Other people, it's coming in and like nothing's organized. They have an entire career of work and they really need me to help them actually manhandle the information and actually do the administrative work, the curatorial work around their actual artwork. Some people need a full inventory done of their work, which means creating a comprehensive inventory of everything that's considered actual artwork, right? Other people have kept records throughout. So it totally depends. One of my clients is actually a woman who inherited her brother's estate of his artwork. So she isn't an artist at all, but she inherited her brother's artwork. He was an artist his whole life and passed away from AIDS in 2012. And she took on his artwork. So she's a non-artist with an art collection now. And she wants to really do right by him and get his work out there. So for her, I did a full inventory We've done an entire sort of back end of how do you use this artwork? And then she is using that information to have his work in exhibitions, to create a website for his work, to create a book. I have as many different kinds of clients as the the needs of different people. But in this case, I thought, what an honor to her brother. Every artist would kill to have someone take this level of care with their art after they are gone. So what I am trying to do is encourage artists because that is very rare for a family member to take that on or be able to, is to do it for them so that when your career is finished, (laughs) there is a way to pass it on so that it is meaningful to others and it is also not a burden to your family. It's a huge burden to take on someone's estate of all these things and not know what was important to them. It's actually painful to know, like, what do I do with all this person's stuff that I know is so important to them, but I don't know what to do with it. Okay. One of my big questions, which I'm sure other people have, is how, if that, if it gets into that kind of situation, so let's say an artist has passed away and now a family member is dealing with it, how can people get work into collections? whether they're institutions or private collections or whatever, like how can that happen? You really need someone who's an advisor to help you do that. Because really, if you're not someone who's in the art world, if you're not someone who's in the art world who already has connections, it's one thing if if the family member who takes on the artwork is a curator or someone in the art world, they may have the connections to help make that happen. And the administrative knowledge of how to do it. There is a massive amount of admin in the art world to make art happen. And it actually requires a lot of knowledge and expertise to do it properly. So it's very difficult if you don't have that background. 
it's even very difficult if you do have that background. I think part of part of what I am was talking about earlier about developing these aspects of your legacy and your lifetime is so that your work is actually more valuable. And you can present the case as to why your work should be collected by this institution because they focus on XYZ and this artist is a perfect fit. It will enhance their collection. No one is in the business of doing you a favor and taking your work so that you can have a line item on your resume that you're in that collection. It actually needs to serve their collection and make it a better collection. So you are in a way, you have to position any artwork to that institution in that way. So honestly, it's very, very difficult to get work taken into any collection. You can, you barely can donate it for free anywhere. I mean, you try to donate it to a school, an art center, a hospital, uh, an elder care center. No one will take it. You So this is why I actually recommend not waiting until the artist has passed. It is when you are in your lifetime, like I'm working with an artist now, the goal of our collection now is getting their work into institutions because it is institutional level. He is still alive. Let's do this now. Therefore, you know, I think there's this sense that we're waiting for someone to discover us in the art world. We're waiting for someone to bestow upon us. We're waiting to receive something. Yes. The art world doesn't give you anything. You have to create it. You have to develop it yourself. You have to go after it. It has to be active, not passive. And that's what legacy planning is. And if you think about it, it's like the first time in your career where you as an artist are in control. No one's telling you what you, how you should be remembered, what's important to you, what is going to happen to your artwork. Like it's incredibly empowering. Okay, you're getting all worked up about this. Relax, it's fine. No, it's as you can see, it's really important to me because I noticed it's it's painful to me. I've been an artist for a long time. I work with people who've been an artist for thirty years longer than I have. It's exceptionally painful for me to see people not feel the meaning and the power of their career when they have so much to offer. It's just it's painful. I want to help them create that. What I'm looking for, though, is, okay, I, I love the way you wax on poetically about the need for this. And it's, you know, it's obvious that you've been doing this for a while. You have a great rapport about this topic. But what I'm interested in is, like, what can we do? What can we do? Like, let's say before hiring you. Mm-hmm. So, like, should I be putting all of my stuff in Excel spreadsheets or should I be writing it down in a notebook or should I be like, what, you know, what, what are the things to actually do? Like theoretically, let's say before even approaching you. It's, it's a really good thing that you asked that because there are some great nonprofit resources for artists on how to do this by themselves. The Joan Mitchell foundation has an entire how to estate planning for artists how to talk to financial people, how to create an inventory for your artwork. So there are resources and I direct my artists to those all the time. And I also have people come to me who say like, I just don't have any resources to put towards this right now. What do you recommend? And I say, go to this website and look at this and do do whatever parts of it you feel you can. So what can you be doing right now? One is 
organizing your artwork where you think, it depends on how you work as an artist. I work in series, I work in projects. So for me, it's very, it's easier to say like this, all of this artwork is from this body of work. I showed it in that set of exhibitions. These are the only works in that body of work. And th so that's the digital side. So think of your computer as one place. You have a folder for every show you've ever been in, every body of work. What are all the final images? What are the press images for that work? What are the, you know? Just to be clear, I have a folder on my computer and I have an external hard drive backup and I have a backup of all of that on Dropbox. Yes, you are ahead of the game. So that's, that's the first thing is backing up. The second thing is organizing your files so that if you if you were some if you were not you sitting down at your computer, what do you put in there so that someone else can understand that? Then you have your physical inventory of artwork, right? You've got an entire studio of boxes of stuff. This one might be work prints. This one might be final prints. We don't know, but you do. You know which box is which. I burned them. Yeah. <laughs> so... So for example, in that case, I'd say, okay, I actually can recommend storage boxes for you. These are archival storage boxes. You need to put one single final print from each body of work in that box. And that box needs to be labeled and that box should correspond to, it could say an Excel spreadsheet, it could be a handwritten list, whatever works for you so that someone else could look at it you can look at it and someone else can look at it and understand what it means. I, t I totally get it. I used to work at a stock photography agency and like okay. they were super uber organized, cross-referenced and everything in this way. So like, I totally understand what you're talking about. However, yeah, every single thing you have just said, all I'm hearing is mo money, mo money, mo money. Like it's just expensive, 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 everything, archival, everything, space to simply just even store things. I mean, storage cost in and of itself is its own issue mm -hmm. with artists. So I mean, like everything I hear is just expense, 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 which does not necessarily translate to return on investment as of course we all want. So it's like, you are exactly right in the sense that some things cost money if you want to have your work in a box that is acid free that will not yellow your work over time you need to invest in a box that will do that if you don't your work will yellow over time that's you may or may not have the resources to do that but that's your choice you could say do i want to spend this money on this part of my art career or do I want to order that box and put all of my important work in it? Do I want to order that sleeves and sleeve each one of those things? Because what would I feel like if that got destroyed? Oh, I'm all about organization and beautiful containers and all this kind of stuff. Like, I and love you're, it. You're right. None of these things are free. The, th the thing that is, quote, doesn't cost you money, theoretically is if you do that admin side yourself, then that part is on your time. It's your time is valuable. So that's what you're spending is your valuable time. And then spending as little as you can on those archival materials. For example, the client I told you about who was brother's work we're working on, 
she had, as everyone does, just his work in like old portfolio cases that he had used over the years, cardboard boxes. Over time, that stuff is going to be useless if it's left in that way, in her basement, left like that. So for example, one of the things was going through the work, photographing it, getting the boxes you need and getting those clear plastic sleeves so that each print goes in one. And the thinking around that for her though, is like, this is the only way to treat this work if it's going to last. And she has taken on the responsibility to develop that for him, to create the career he never had, to be honest. And usually we don't spend the time and we don't spend the money because we're always making new work or we're always looking forward, right? Or like looking right now. And so I totally relate because I haven't done all of this stuff for myself yet either. I'm pretty organized, but I wouldn't say if I stepped out tomorrow, you would know what to do with my stuff. So just like the shoemaker who has no shoes, like, <laughs> you know, I need to do this for myself, but it really is a, a big job to do. Now, I will say for some artists, it's been an easy job because I walk in the door and they don't need me very much other than to give them guidance on how to do it for themselves. And other people are at square one and they just, they have nothing but handwritten notes so it's really, there's everywhere in between, but what, what I felt like is I can teach people, either teach people the tools themselves to do this if they don't have resources. If they do have resources, I can help them do that. And everywhere in between. And I do talks at nonprofit organizations and things like that to give people information. I share the Joan Mitchell Foundation with them. I also, a great organization is called SURF that was developed, C-E-R-F. Well, it was developed for ceramic and craft artists, but they have a very strong emphasis on legacy planning because ceramic artists, think of studios that artists leave behind with an incredible amount of supplies, equipment, tools. So for an artist like that, their studio and their equipment and their tools are as much a part of who they are as an artist well, I'm also thinking of like stone carvers and metal mm -hmm. smiths. I mean, yeah. the, just the storage. Like, so, like, I know of an artist that pays like 20,000 euros a year in storage fees for his sculptures. So, like, if and when he passes away, he has no children or wife. Like, who's going to pay this storage fee? It's just, his work is just going to sort of be lost to the winds. He needs a plan now for that work or that's exactly because sculpture is the hardest thing to place. But like you're right, sculpture is the hardest thing. I, I don't even I've, I've tried so many times with artists who have large scale sculpture that they've created that was not created for a permanent location. They can't give it away. They can't pay to move it. They can't. So sculpture is kind of a different animal. And I and I do not recommend making large sculpture that is temporary. Because what the heck are you going to do with it? As an artist, it's an, a huge expense. And I think, you know, I'm a photographer and I also do installation. So photography, you know, you need acid-free. It's paper. You need acid-free materials. You need all of these things. And a shelf. And shelves and low moisture and, you know, for perfection. And, <laughs> you know, I think, I think other mediums have different concerns. Some are easier to store than others. Three-dimensional work is very difficult. I would say photography and works on paper are a much easier animal to deal with in terms of inventory and storage. 
Oh yeah. Okay. So like I do like the whole certificate of authenticity that's signed and numbered with a hologram sticker with matching numbers on the certificate of authenticity and on the back of the print. And then of course signed on the print as well. And I put them all together. And then I also keep a photocopy or a scan of that certificate in my files separately, just in case for some reason, if my studio word burned down, I would have a, a second copy of it at my home location. I mean, and this is something that I grew up with, which was my parents had this weird habit and I have no idea where they got it, which was our family photo albums were at home and my dad stored all of our family photo negatives at his office. So in case one of the two locations burned down or got robbed right. or flooded or whatever, the, the other one would still have the file, the images, the files, whatever. So like that was something that was ingrained into me at a very young age that like, even, especially when you have these backup systems and redundancies and all this, you also have to store them in separate locations in yeah. case there's some sort of catastrophic disaster at one particular location. Correct. And your dad had the idea that these things were exceptionally valuable to him and would hate to lose those. My mom is cutting up our family photos now for craft projects. It's ridiculous now, but she's not doing it to the negatives. <laughs> yeah. So it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, it, it's so interesting. And I, I think that legacy planning is really just an extension of how we handle our art career throughout our lives. It, it's really not something to do at the end of your career. Legacy planning is part of a way of thinking about your work from essentially when you're mid-career to say, I, I am going to treat my art like it matters, like it's going to matter to someone else, even if I have days when I don't believe that. <laughs> Push on. And despite your own lack of uh, confidence or, or uncertainty, treat yourself like the artist you want to be. And literally, I can't tell you, I, I just feel like we are so beaten down by being in the art world that the thought of investing in ourselves and valuing ourselves and our work in that way feels like a luxury. It feels like, I'm, who am I to do that? And it's not true. Who are you not to when you have done this whole career of work your work is valuable to others in addition to yourself. You should share that with other people. Just because the biggest gallery in the world didn't give you a solo show doesn't mean your work isn't important. Oh, no, 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 not yet. That's all. Correct. Just, that's it. They just haven't given me the exhibition yet. Exactly. Well, and also part of legacy planning that I do with artists is about getting that retrospective show that you want for your career. So like we talked about the book, right? For some people, a retrospective is where they're at in their career. You, if you wait for someone to bestow upon you a retrospective when you're 80, you're going to be waiting a long time. You have to really be active about trying to make those things happen. Only a few people have that happen later. It's really about doing what you can now to make your work as relevant as possible and to achieve the things that you want that will make you feel accomplished. Part of one of the reasons I started doing this was I went to an event by an artist that I knew. It was before I was doing this as a as work. It was I was running an art organization. One of my one of the artists in our community was turning 100 and she was having a solo show at a gallery in the area 
And it was a, a combination solo exhibition of her paintings and birthday party for her and artist talk. So I went to this. It was a beautiful show. She gave a beautiful talk. There was a big cake and a big celebration. And I thought, this is the most meaningful, touching, lovely event I have ever seen. What a cap on a 50-year career of painting to have a moment like this in your lifetime to see all these people and your family and have a book published and talk about your work and have your retrospective. It was like, it was very impactful for me to see that happen for someone. And I thought, wow, I can help make that happen for other people. I know how to do all of these parts of all of this continuum. I can help people make this happen by proactively going after it. I think like that's the difference is it's like when you have an art advisor working with you, you do legacy planning. It's about being active in achieving what you want and taking it to that next level of saying, I need help. I feel like I can do better. I'm really awesome, but I feel like I could do better with help. Okay. I'm all for all of your waxing poetics about the, <laughs> the beautiful you know, reasoning behind what you do and, and the need for it. And I'm, I'm all for it. But the big question, of course, is how much does this cost? I mean, because like what I'm hearing, again, is lots of money to be spent and lots of time and energy to be spent on something. Um, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think- yeah. It really, like I said, it really depends. What I do is I usually, usually I work on an hourly basis because it's more cost effective for the client. That way they're just paying for the time that I'm spending to, to work on their project. I do work with collectors for legacy planning too. And that's a different thing. That's more of creating a legacy and a remembrance around their collection. I charge a different rate for collectors than I do for artists. I hope Um, more. yeah, essentially yeah, okay. my rate for collectors is is my full hourly rate. My rate for artists is half my hourly rate. That's lovely. So I basically saw very quickly that for artists to do this for themselves, it needed to it needed to be affordable and regulatable. Where if you're a collector, you tend to have more resources to put towards these things. You're not nickel and diming every five minutes. Where when you're an artist, you're like, wow, I only have X to spend. How best can I use that? That's the other way I work with people. Say like, I have enough resources for three sessions. Like, what can we do? Or I have enough resources to do this and this. Can we work on those together? And that's how I mean for customizing it. But again, a lot of the time, the other side of this is it's sort of teaching you to fish. Like on the one side, like if you work with someone who knows what they're doing and you sort of learn that, then you can do it yourself. Some other people can't do that. They're just administratively, it, it's too much to do that admin side. So I think it's making a choice of how you spend your resources as an artist. You can put all your money into the making of new work. You can put all, some money into that and some into promoting your work and trying to get it out there. You can put some of your money into getting it into collections and taking it to the next level. And usually, All we spend it on is just on making the work. We don't even document it when it's finished. We move on to the next thing before we've really closed out on that other thing. That's not true. We'd photograph it for Instagram. (laughs) 
Well, it, I don't know. It's such it's such a different art world that we're in now. And and I feel like in the past, basically part of why what I do even exists now or makes sense is because there used to be a paradigm for the art world where an artist based on the merit of their work got a gallery to represent them. That gallery then built their career. They promoted them, they found shows for them, they found buyers, they got their work into museums. They helped them get grants, all of these different things. So they raised the profile of that artist over many years by both of those two people, the dealer and the artist working together to build a client base. Okay, so that was the old model of representation, which essentially almost is non-existent at this point. There are still galleries who represent artists, but the majority show artists, but do not represent them in that same manner. I know, it's so sad. It's really sad. So artists, what happened is basically, instead of having an infrastructure of people who knew what they were doing to build an artist's career, you eventually, you essentially had artists needing to do that for themselves because the entire gallery market fell out and the model for galleries of being able to make a living representing an artist and only making money when they sell their work doesn't work as a business model anymore. Okay. I suddenly thought, are there grants that artists or collectors can apply for to be able to pay you to help them? Yes. It's so interesting you asked that. One of my current clients who is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, she actually applied for a grant to pay for my services and got it. So she is getting, I want to say, five or $600 towards working with me. And it is literally a professional development grant. I don't know if it's only for California artists. I have to check into it, but we're literally doing the paperwork for that now. She submitted what she wanted to do with me. Does she work in academia? Because that sounds like an academic no, thing. No, it's really? not. It's, yeah. it's totally outside of academia. She isn't one of those kinds of artists. She comes from the design world. I was thrilled. So basically what she did is she got an investment from this organization of $500 to begin working with me, and then we can accomplish what we can either for 500 bucks <laughs> or continue on after that. But that that's exactly why SURF, the organization I told you about that does legacy, they have grant processes for artists to do this. So, and the Joan Mitchell Foundation, this is very, very important to them, legacy planning. So there may be resources that you could find through them. But I think more and more this is going to be the case that there will be, I hope, more financial help in this regard. But you're bringing up something that's very important. I think money is a big factor for artists. and if Money you, is very important. Yeah. And if you, you have to have some resources to make art. And you have to have some resources to promote art. I mean, you even if you're going to have a business card, you need to spend money to get a business card. If you're going to have a, a website, website, they're not free. You're going to pay money for a website, right? So we're always putting money towards our artwork. So I think the thing to think about is just, you, you mentioned, you know, return on investment, ROI. Like, what is your ROI? Yeah, sorry, my wife is an accountant. So well, there you I go. And think I think like artists that. don't think of that. So like, that's a great point with, um, I think, getting help. It's like, why would you pay someone to design your website for you when you could do it yourself? Well, because they're better at it. 
and they can do it a lot faster and a lot better. You could spend a year learning how to develop a website and make a mediocre one, or you pay someone to do a really good one and get it done in three months. You know what I mean? It's like, but if you don't have the money to do it in three months, you do it yourself and you do the best you can. So I think that's the trade-off we all do throughout our careers. And I feel that that's why not everyone is a client for me. I can't help people. I, this is a business that I do as well. I'm not a nonprofit organization. There are nonprofits that people can go to if they want to do it all themselves or can't have to do it all themselves. I, someone like myself or other people who do this are there to help people who say, okay, I'm going to choose this slice of my resources to put towards this goal now, which is I want a retrospective. I want a book. I want a video, a documentary. I want to see my work in more collections. How can I make those things happen? And then we figure out how to make that happen. But not every everybody has a different life story. And artists you think would have no resources do. And artists you think have resources don't. <laughs> So, you know, I just, I find every single person, it's like a custom relationship. Same with artists who I'm not doing legacy planning with. The art advising is just the flip side of legacy planning. It's developing the career that you, you want the legacy for. Okay. I have a very specific question within that because I have spoken with some other art advisors on this mm -hmm. podcast. Um, it's I'm sorry if this comes off as sort of blunt and cold and all this, but like, <laughs> why should any artist, let's say, choose any particular advisor. Like mm -hmm. there are advisors all over the world at different levels with different qualifications, with different skill sets. So like what, like if I was an artist and I am choosing to choose uh, a particular art advisor, why, sh what should I be looking for? Like what, what are their, not, not, not qualifications, but like qualities yeah. that I should be looking for in an advisor? I think that's an excellent question. I think it determ it, it's dependent on your goals. If your main goal is selling work to make money, you need to choose an advisor that sells a lot of work, that is about selling. But how can you find, like, because I've looked at some art advisors' websites mm -hmm. and nobody says, uh, you know, like, I've made X amount of money on average for my clients. <laughs> you know, like, no, I have sold, you know, $250,000 on right. average for all of my clients. Like, nobody gives the statistics. Everybody's very vague. They love their big vocabulary and all their terminology. Right. But the, the actual, like, nuts and bolts of, like, the reality of how good are they and what do they know and how can they technically and tangibly help an artist Correct. is not often put on their website or advertised. For example, if you go to my about section in my website, you see like, what is my background? And then you can say, does that background match what I'm trying to do? If it doesn't, don't choose that advisor. So for example, I have, have been an artist, a professor, a curator, an art administrator, an executive director, a fundraiser, and a fine art appraiser. Okay. So with that context, I see the art world in a many more shades of gray, if you will, than when I was only an artist or when I was just an artist and a gallery director. Then when I was a gallery director, after being a gallery director, and I was a curator in a nonprofit organization, then what was the difference when I became the executive director and chief curator of an organization? 
each, it's almost like an onion. I was thinking about it before we talked is like the art world is more like an onion with many, many layers. And you're sort of peeling back each layer of information. And I find that as artists, we are the least in the know in the continuum of the art world. I didn't understand that when I was a younger artist. I thought the art world worked based on the merit of your artwork. If your artwork was really good and really important and really on point, things would happen. It has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it. Now, the work has to be there to begin with. Like you just have to have good work because there's a million artists out there doing decent work. Yours has to be better, period. But what I realized from when I was, you know, in the full-time tenure track kind of adjunct teaching world, you know, after, after grad school and doing that for many years, I start, and, and I started to see how that was shifting dramatically. There were l- fewer and fewer full-time tenure track positions. Absolutely none of them went to young women. And I thought, all right, here I am in this track. I'm already slugging it out as an artist to try to get somewhere. I don't need to slug it out as an adjunct for the rest of my life to get nowhere also. Right? Oh, no. I've got to tell you, actually, there was a position, a chair of a photography department that I was up for after grad school. And they flew me down there. We did the whole tour, did the whole, you know, the whole wine and dine and all that kind of stuff. And at the end, the guy said, I would love to have you. I would like to offer you this position. However, we legally have to give it to a woman. That guy was an idiot to say that to you out loud. First of all, that department is full of idiots. I'm sorry to say it like that, but what kind of person says that that's exactly why they were had to hire a woman in that department. It was in the southern, southern, eastern, southern United States. Well, this is what I mean. This is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, if you're what willing to move to the middle of nowhere, you might get a full time tenure track. I wasn't. I mean, that was part of my main thing. Is I was. I went to college in Bloomington, Indiana. I did that small town America thing. Not going to get a full-time tenure track where I need to spend 30 years in small-town America teaching photography. That was not my goal. And when I realized, like you, having been up for the, I was the, you know, the last two candidates for several full-time tenure tracks that didn't work out, I thought, hey, I wonder what else is I could do in this art world. Like I, what I really loved as an artist was putting on exhibitions. I loved showing the work and bringing it to fruition and the actual exhibition process and and the completion. I loved that aspect of it. And I also had volunteered to help with a gallery when I was at SFAI. I, I, I coordinated, uh, helped coordinate a gallery. So I had... Wait, 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 wait. What gallery? Well, like I was the still lights gallery coordinator at school, which was the photography department. And then I did an internship at New Langton Arts. Do you remember New Langton Arts? I do. And I was the coordinator for the Diego Rivera gallery. Oh, okay. So that's why I'm like, what gallery? Yeah. No, I didn't do the Diego Rivera, but similar idea. And I thought, you know, I really love that side of it. So when I moved to Philadelphia from the Bay Area, after having lived out there for about 10 years where I did the adjunct life of, you know, working at five schools, eating every meal in my car for six years, I basically moved east. And I decided 
to, instead of seeking more adjunct teaching, I said, I am going to try to work in another part of the art world. And I essentially transitioned to becoming a gallery director of the fine art photography gallery in Philadelphia. In spite of myself, I, I managed to get that position. And it was so interesting because that was the beginning of pulling back the curtain on the art world for me. What happened is I moved back to Philadelphia where I hadn't lived in 10 years. I became the director of the only photography gallery in Philadelphia. Which is surprising. I would think of Philadelphia as a photography community. Well, it used to be. And then it kind of got away from it. And this gallery was kind of bringing back the first new, you know. So let me put it this way. When you're the only gallery in town for that particular, you become really important for that community. So what I saw happen was immediately I became this differently important person that people wanted to meet and like wanted to show me their work. And I was like, I became... I went from being a beggar in the continuum, where we are as artists, like, please, sir, can you look at my work? Can you like, please, sir, can I have another? To being a gatekeeper overnight. And all of a sudden, I understood, oh, there are gatekeepers. There are tiers of decision makers in this process. It's almost a caste system, even. Well, yeah, there, yes. And also a system, there is a system like as artists, we, we like, it seems like this amorphous thing that like, doesn't make sense to us. Right. And then once you're in there, you're like, oh, okay. There's a way that this, this field works. There's a way that organizations work. There's a way that this makes sense in a different level. And you also, I also realized the power of that role of that decision-making and gatekeeping role. And it also made me realize how important relationships are with those people. Yes. I mean, we had a conversation off the air before this recording about the fact that like when I left grad school and for that matter, even when I left my undergraduate schools, I made the, the error, you know, during school, I made the error of not engaging enough with my classes and my teachers and my TAs and the opportunities that they all brought to us. But in leaving the school, I did not stay in contact with many of the people that I had known and met and gotten to know. And that breaking of those networks was greatly to my uh, detriment in my mm -hmm. career, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, relationships are really the basis for what happens in the art world as in life. <laughs> what people think is the art world is somehow different from the rest of life and the rest of business. It is not. So I think if we can wrap our minds around that as artists, we can be less a victim of this process because we don't understand it. No, the victim role, that is my entire identity. Please do not <laughs> take that from me. <laughs> well, see, that's why you're pushing back against the legacy planning, because you're like, no, I'm a victim. I am not getting, no one's giving me these opportunities. I don't have the money. It's like, no, you're not a victim. You could actually say, I don't want to be a victim anyway. That was part of where I think my my shift from being a part-time adjunct to that gallery director side. Well, part of that victim role, though, is also like, the, I, I feel like there's sort of this weird, like, 
tunnel vision that a lot of artists have where they believe that they are deserved to be in an institution or a collection or somehow, but they don't see the other things that they, like they should show in a coffee shop and then maybe a bar and then maybe a, you know, a better coffee shop and sort of build your career slowly over the decades. Yeah. Like you are not going to start making artwork and be in an institution. I would say like, I'll give it within the same decade. Like right. you need to build it over a lifetime. It's not a, a very, it's not a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. That kind of brings up the aspect that there are many art worlds. I think that we as artists think that there is a linear ladder that gets from the beginning of a career to the top. And that if you just like keep climbing the ladder, that's how you get to the top. And but you can sleep your way to the top if you need you to. Can, yes, you can. Yes, you can. There are, you know, I, I was given an article. This was very inspiring, I should say. I was given an article by one of the teachers in grad school at SFAI. It had a triangle on it. And it showed that 10 years after an MFA degree, only 10% of people who got an MFA were still making art 10 years later. I heard five after five years, 5% 5 after five years. Yeah. yeah. So can you imagine how many after just a BFA? Do you think of how many, you know, how many, what's the percentage? So that was pretty disheartening. After I read that article, I had my wallet stolen. I went to the police station to report it. I go up to the front desk to the policeman behind the desk to report it. He said, oh, you go to the SFAI. What do you do there? I said, oh, I'm getting an MFA in photography. He goes, oh, I got an MFA in photography at SFAI 10 years ago. And I almost passed out in disappointment. He was the embodiment of this article and everything I didn't want to be. Okay. Actually, a, a young lady that I graduated with is actually a police officer in, in San Francisco as well. And she's yeah. very happy. Yeah. So I think, I think that once you understand that the art world is not a, an art world, there are many art worlds and they are not joined always. They, we think of them as concentric circles, but they're not. No, no, no. They're like a series of Venn diagrams that it, parts of them do overlap, but they just don't overlap a lot. But I mean, like I ran into the fact that like I grew up, I grew up on the East Coast and then I went to school in Iowa and San Francisco and on the East Coast. Now they do not overlap at all. And then I moved to the Middle East and now I'm in Europe and they don't overlap at all. Right. And so like, like one of the things that I found out is, is like there is only so far you can move when you're in your career before it it you basically lose all of the momentum that you had with your career so like there's a certain distance and a certain amount of moving that you can do where your career will follow you and you will all your accolades will be great but like when i moved like I, when i got to europe i started saying like oh yeah i went to the san francisco art institute and everybody's like so oh. <laughs> right uh, you know, uh, whereas like if I said that in Washington, D.C., people would be like, well, that's a really good school. That's right. that's amazing. Yes, we'll give you a better look. But in <laughs> Europe, everybody's like, yeah, so right. what? Yeah. Yeah. And so like different 
different art worlds and different continents and different regions just don't care about certain things. Like, I mean, I'm here in the Czech Republic and I know of Czech artists that go to Berlin, like, which is only four hours by train. And in Berlin, the people will say like, oh yeah, I'm a Czech artist. And they'll go like, so? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're only four hours away from each other and right. they don't give a crap. Right. So like, it's, it's a very interesting nature. I mean, and this is sort of what this whole podcast is about to me, which is that everybody thinks the, the art world is a singular thing that expands the globe. And it right. absolutely does in some ways, but in the day-to-day -day workings of it, it absolutely does not. It's it very regional, very local. And then like only the ones that sort of rise to the top end up being part of the worldwide whatever. But it, it takes a lot of work and time and decades and building a career, building a legacy, all this kind of stuff that, that you know, our young Instagram stars just haven't put the time in for. <laughs> but that's just my well, yeah, and. I think I think it's interesting too. There was some research recently done about the art market itself. Well, first of all, there are reports. Let me put it this way. This is what I this is what I learned becoming an appraiser. Okay, stop. Hold on. I hate those things because they're always talking about the secondary auction market. They're not talking about the gallery selling artists or artists selling out of their studios or artists selling from their websites. It's always about the multi-million dollar auction stuff. But that is the art market that they are operating in. But that's not the art market that's going to put money in my pocket. <laughs> no, but that's not the art market that collectors of that level are interested in. Like the art market that is put that is discussed in primary and secondary sales. Primary sales are sales that go from the artist directly or from the first gallery directly. It's the first sale of the work. Secondary market is when that work is sold by an owner to another owner or by a gallery to a new owner. And honestly, there's more money in the secondary market, okay? And secondly, the blue chip market is the market when we're talking about Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips and all of the international auctions around the world, that is its own market that relates to primary and secondary markets that are uh, galleries, excuse me, that are brick and mortar galleries or online galleries, those kinds of things. The idea is there's a level of selling, a level and price point of work that that is referring to. And that's why it's important when they say the art market, they mean the blue chip art market. They mean the art market at the high end. The secondary art market. Well, not just secondary, because for example, Kahinda Wiley, right, is a an incredibly successful painter right now and artist. He, he was an undergrad at SFAI when I was there. His work as primary sales exceeds many secondary market sales. He's selling pieces for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a piece. And that's primary. And he's making them right now. So there is a primary market. Jeff Koons is primary market if he's selling new work. All of these people are primary market selling through a large gallery. Those same galleries, Pace, Gagosian, etc., they all do secondary market sales as well. So, and where Christie's, Sotheby's auctions only do secondary market. So essentially there's a level of the art market that is the investment level art market that that is talking about, okay? 
that doesn't mean that's the only art market and that you can't be very successful in other art markets. Some people are very regionally successful. Everyone in that region knows them. They might be very successful within a particular medium, but then artists in other mediums don't know of that artist. So I think it, that's where it comes down to determining what is important to you. You might want that blue chip art market eventually. Everybody wants the blue chip yeah, art market. Well, not, not everybody. Be shocked. A lot of people don't want that kind of attention on themselves in this in this weird way. But I think it's figuring out how you can be successful, where your work makes sense. Your work may not make sense in that market, but it does, it's very relevant to your current local market. I think like, for example, here, there's the Brandywine River School of Painting. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but thinking of like Thomas Aikens, like there's a whole landscape and figurative Sure, like the, like the Hudson Valley's kind of people. Yeah, so it's like rivers and streams and bridges and barns and stuff like that. That's wildly popular in a certain region here. And there are people who are important in that continuum who no one's heard of anywhere else, but their work sells for quite a bit of money and they are important locally. So, and if that school becomes something that is studied later, they could be an important figure in that school if you will. So I think, I think it's broadening your own definition for any artist as to like, how is your work relevant? And what can you do proactively to advance yourself and your work within the circle that's of interest to you? A lot of people aren't really interested in that higher level market because they're focused on something more immediate in their work or it's more relevant to something that they're interacting with at the moment. Everybody would like for, you know, to have a retrospective at the MoMA in New York in their lifetime or after they're dead, but that doesn't guarantee anything anyway, either. I'll, I'll take the Guggenheim. It's <laughs> the research I was bringing up that was similar to that article that was shown to me that we just discussed about the police officer. It was research that showed that if it was looking at the blue chip market and it was saying there are certain galleries that if an artist showed in that gallery within the first 10 years of their career, they were something like 70% more likely to remain in that level, at that blue chip level for the duration of their career. The chance that someone who didn't show in a gallery of that level in the first 10 years of their career of getting to that level was approximately 10%. So what is the takeaway from that? Part of that is what you brought up, which is relationships. Do you know how a young artist gets into a gallery like that early on? Relationships. Their teachers get, recommend them to the gallery. Why do you think Yale is a popular program? They basically set people up into positions and RISD also, RISD and Yale, because of their proximity to New York and their connections to New York, have a much higher rate of people being placed into situations like that. Kehindawali was a great example because I, after grad school, I remember being in New York and I saw a solo show of his work at Deech Projects, Jeffrey Deech's gallery in Soho. Well, if you have your first solo show in New York at Deech Projects in Soho, that's a different trajectory 
<laughs> than someone who gets out and has a their first show at a cafe. Now, that's not to say he didn't have lots of smaller shows before that, but my point is, is at a critical point in his career, and many artists, they are placed at a certain level that then allows them their gallery to develop that level of their career for them. If you are not in that camp, you have a much more circuitous road to that. It is possible, but it is difficult. And I think the, the reality for artists is this is a very difficult field to be in. No one owes you anything. You are not owed anything just because you make art and are an artist, okay? And literally, there's this, it felt like, I meet a lot of people, it's like they feel like the fact that they make art is somehow in and of itself is worthy of someone paying attention to them. And that isn't necessarily the case. You know, I mean, I think, I think we need to create audiences for our work. We need to create work that is relevant. And as an artist, you have to make a choice at a certain point. You clearly have, I clearly have, we are still in it. We're still doing it. I can't quit. I can't not do it. I can't not be an artist. I could, it would be much easier in my career if I just drop the art part, just be like, stop being an artist and just go straight for like the administrative side of this. It'd be a lot easier, but I can't. I would be so depressed. <laughs> well, exactly. It's like, we didn't get into this to do some side business in the arts. We got into it for the art with a capital A. And especially because you and I went to the San Francisco Art Institute, very conceptual, heady school, and very high standards. I graduated in the new genre program as well. Yes, well then, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I just, I think as artists, if you're gonna stick it out, you just have to have the constitution that says, this is on its face, not practical. This costs me money. This doesn't bring me the easy or financial success that I am looking for yet. It's important enough for me to keep doing it. I have to, I'm compelled to make this work. And if you're that kind of artist, you are going to put in that kind of time in your career and you are going to make work throughout your career that is important and valuable, even if that is just to your circle. But the point is, is we have to sort of have that internal commitment to keep going despite the rejection, despite not getting the accolade you want, despite not getting the teaching position you want. It's like, what do we do in the face of those disappointments? Keep going. Other people quit. You know how many people quit being an artist? Most. 95%. Correct. <laughs> and so I think it, it's a huge accomplishment to be a living artist with a long career. That says a lot about you, I think. and. It can say you're crazy. It can say you're difficult. It can say you're obstinate, but it can also say that you're really committed to your work and that it is worthy of me giving it attention and time because clearly you've invested 30 years in this. <laughs> you've invested even three years in this project. Are you saying I look old? What's no, I'm saying like, you know, I think, I think it's very hard as an artist to maintain this confidence in our work over time because we are constantly facing rejection or difficulty in this path. So that either strengthens you or it beats you down or it goes back and forth. 
I was going to say, I have both constantly. Like, I mean, on the one hand, I'm always like, okay, why am I constantly being rejected for whatever grant, exhibition, residency, yada, yada, yada. And on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, you can always just validate it by saying, well, my style, subject matter, technique, whatever, just doesn't fit with them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it does get very tedious and, and and exhausting to when when they when you have a lot of the rejections in a yeah. row. Yeah. The hard the hardest I think is the in a row. Yeah, because like, like if I could have uh, if I could have it where it was like ten rigid ten no's one yes and then ten no's and one <laughs> yes. Now that would be a marvelous little balance. I'd love that. Right. I could I could tolerate that in my lifetime. It's when you get like a hundred no's over ten years yeah. and no yeses yeah. that it does get a little tedious to continue. It's like, okay, there is a point where it's like, huh, do do you keep doing it? <laughs> I know. And I think that struggle that you're talking about is the struggle of being an artist. You are always going to be questioning your work and its validity and its ability to communicate. And do where do I get off doing this if I'm not getting the validation that it's, it's good enough? You are absolutely right. That is why I personally also sort of vacillate between periods of time when I'm doing a lot of applications and periods when I'm just like, I can't. I'm not going to for a while. Or I'm going to see what comes to me through the relationships I have been building and balance that with applications. Because I think that is one of the hardest things about continuing is that rejection you get from grants, from shows, from a gallery, whatever it is. But one of the things that makes me feel better about that, having been a curator for many years and a gallery director... I saw time after time work that was incredibly good, not get picked and not get shown. And for nothing to do with the artwork. And very often it's the best, most powerful work that isn't picked because it is harder to sell. If you're in a gallery environment, the reason you get taken into the gallery is because the gallerist says, I can sell that and make money. I can make the artist money and I can make me money. If they can't make money on your work, it doesn't matter how important it is, how good it is. If they can't sell it, they're not going to take you on. So that makes the gallery rejection feel better because that could be, if your work doesn't fit the gallery base, the, the collector base that they already have, they're not taking you on, even if they really like your work. I, I, I had a, a number of meetings with galleries in LA right after I finished grad school five of them in Bergamont station, you know, with like all of those big galleries in, in that. Anyway. So I had like five appointments, every single one of them told me if I could show the work that I really want to show, I'd be showing your work. I can't sell this. They're like, I can't sell this. I'm sorry. Like it's really, really good work, but I can't sell it. And I heard that from five galleries and I was like, and, 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 and several of them said, Oh, well, you know, this should be in a museum. Like you should be talking to so-and-so, but as you and I both know, how do I get to so-and-so without you as the middleman to get me there? Right. I worked in a gallery in San Francisco when I was there and, and 
not the Diego Rivera, different gallery. And we focused on quality of work. We were like, this is good work. Like, and we didn't sit there and be like, well, can we sell it? Do we have the collector base? We didn't think about any of that. Don't get me wrong. The gallery was closed within two years, but of course it, it was. was, but it was such a great gallery space and such great exhibitions for yeah. those two years. Yeah. It was, it was absolutely magnificent, but yeah, it could, it didn't stand up. Like you, you couldn't, like I still, to this day, remember some of the pieces we exhibited, and I'm like, they were really beautiful works, right. but, but nobody bought them. Correct. So I think that's the problem: is that you then look at that that the, some of that work, some of those artists you showed, maybe had real trouble getting another gallery, or they didn't stay with another gallery because their work didn't sell very well. So there's that side, and you have to also realize that every curator, whether they're at a museum, an organization, wherever has certain interests, certain aesthetics, and certain things that they want to write about, read about, curate shows about. A curator or a gallerist, they're also doing their own legacy planning. So like a curator wants to have a legacy of writing about or working with or whatever X type of artist, a gallery wants to have the same kind of legacy of Mm -hmm. we are known for this kind of work and these, and these collections and collectors. So I mean, just as much as artists are creating their own legacies, these, everybody else in the arts industry is also trying to create their own legacy by the relationships and the, and the business that they do. You are so right. And that's where you can leverage that though, as an artist, like, that's how you choose. Who are you going to go to to develop a relationship with to further your work? A curator already interested in the kind of work you make, who already has the connections with other artists you admire who do that or with institutions you want to be in. So it's being smart as an artist where you're not knocking on the door of someone who loves realist painting when you're an abstract painter. You know, it's like find the curators and the people in the field who are interested in what you're doing and develop the relationship with that person. Not not the shotgun approach of just like, hey, my work is good. I hope someone will pick it up. The overall trajectory I think of success is relationship based. It is how art sales happen. It's why a collector will buy from the same artist again and again or from the same gallery again and again. So I think if you understand that as an artist and don't resist that side of it, because I hear a lot of people like, I don't want to network. I don't want to, it, it's not networking in a corporate cheesy sense. Yes, it is. No. Networking. Guess what networking means? Making friends. That's literally what networking means is making friends. So what do you do to network as an artist? Make friends with people. And how do you do that? By being an authentic human being that's actually interested in more than just yourself when you're in a relationship with someone and helping others. Because I think this is the thing for me that I saw too, is in many of my roles, I got to know people as the curator, the gallery director, the executive director, the advisor, right? When I interface with a decision maker as that person, I am a peer. When I interface with them as an artist, I lose power and they have more power than me, okay? So two things about that dynamic is if I begin the relationship as a peer, we have a similar power base. 
very often then they will notice what I'm doing as an artist and later be like, oh, I noticed you're doing X, Y, and Z. Would you give a talk at my place? Can I show you your project with this show that I'm working on? That is actually how a lot of things have happened for me. The other side is I spend a lot of my career helping other people develop their careers. So whenever I'm talking to people on the phone, I'm emailing them on someone's behalf, I'm not doing it for me. I'm saying, hey, I know this artist's work. And I do this not just for clients. I'm like one of these people, like, if I know your work and I see someone's doing something and it's like a perfect fit, I just can't help but contact them and recommend you. I did this recently when I was living, I was in New York for my appraisal program. I went to a gallery. They were exhibiting a graffiti artist, like an urban artist. And they were incredibly friendly and open. And their gallery was a wonderful experience. This is in Chelsea. And I was like, oh my God, they're talking to me. They're being nice. They sent me things after. It was, it was amazing. And I immediately contacted an artist I work with who's a painter and a graffiti artist and said, well, first of all, I mentioned him in her gallery to her. I recommended him. I said, I have this artist. I think he's amazing. You know, he's in New York. Maybe, you know, you've seen his work. Then I send him a text and I said, hey, I just went to a, a gallery today in New York. I think your work might be great there. I mentioned your name. If you're interested, follow up with them. That's what I do for anybody I know. Like, and that happens all the time. I'll do that for clients, but I can't help myself to do it for anybody I know because it's how you're a good human being in the world by helping others, right? And the art world is totally based on introductions and relationships. So if I can help someone with that relationship or that introduction, why wouldn't I? And what I didn't realize actually happens from that is it reflects very well on me for not always talking about myself and trying to promote myself. So that's a big thing you can do as an artist, even if you're not a curator, an advisor, any of these things. If you're the kind of artist who helps your friends and who recommends to, you have a, a studio visit, you recommend another artist to that curator and then they go and see that other artist studio, that's how it works. And they should do that for you. You see what I'm saying? Like you, you can be recommended by someone in a studio and that person says, because here's what curators do a lot. They ask artists for recommendations a lot. They're like, you know, I love your work. Who do you, who whose work do you really admire? Who are you working with in the community? Like, who are some other artists you you think are doing great stuff? And like, you'd be shocked that you, we have this perception that curators know every artist out there, and they're simply not calling me. They know about me. Why aren't they calling? They don't know about you. They don't know your work unless you put your work right under their nose. They don't know it. I think that relationship building and being less about yourself all the time in the art world and being generous in spirit and recommendations. Like even what you just did with me, you invited me, you had this conversation with Amanda and then you invited me to do this. What a wonderful way for you and I to become friends and now share a network. Seriously, and it's and I really appreciate you asking me that because this is a beautiful new relationship and you have a whole group of people in Czech Republic and everywhere else that are your people. And maybe I can help you in some way in the future because I will now know about you and your work. I, I don't know how I can help you, but I'll try. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I really think it is about artists scratching each other's backs too. And I think when you hear, when we learn art history and we hear about these groups of artists who would hang out together 
And how was it that this whole group of artists who all hung out all got famous? Well, guess how? They all recommended each other. When their gallerist came over for dinner, they invited their other friend, the artist, so that they could chat and drink and smoke together and become friends. I mean, I think that's the other side of this is artists used to get together and talk about art and get drunk and sloppy and behave badly. And it was really a lot of fun. And I think like this, we, we don't. We call it grad school now. Yeah, like Paris in the 20s, the Algonquin Roundtable for writers, right, in New York. So those, I think, are how groups of artists were discovered by a critic, by a gallerist. We sort of don't have those networks socially anymore. And that way of bringing others into our circle, I think artists over time have gotten very proprietary and not sharing. They don't want to share their technique. They don't want to share their contacts. They don't want you to talk to their gallery. It's difficult, you know, and that that is a different paradigm than it used to be. I think that artists and relationships within with our peers, as well as developing relationships with decision makers, and then when you have a working relationship with a decision maker, be amazing and easy to work with. Because if you are difficult or you don't produce or you're late on everything, you're a pain in the ass, they are never going to work with you again. And when the other curator calls them up and says, hey, do you know any, I'm, I'm doing a show on XYZ, do you know any artists that I should be looking at? They will specifically not mention you, even if your work is perfect, because you're a jerk to work with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because. Yeah. It reflects poorly on me if I recommend an artist who's a nightmare to work with. It comes back on me. So I would never trash talk anybody. I would never say bad feedback on anyone. I just wouldn't recommend them. And that's happened a lot of times. I think all of these things about being successful in the art world really are about relationships. There always is that person who's a jerk who still is successful. That like there's always that person. Okay. But the majority of people like that, they don't even know how much they're missing out on because they are not recommended for things. They just, they don't realize it. And that's like one of the biggest things when I talk to young artists, because a lot of younger artists, like you're, you sort of use that Instagram artist these days, there's some pretty confident young artists out there and they need to learn how to behave in the world as an adult. <laughs> And as a person, people want to work with, or they're really not going to get very far. Now, of course, I can think of, of the few examples that squeak through on that. But I think it's few and far between. And they, they have to fit a certain mold to, to sort of be able to get away with that. You know, I think we have to be both realistic about how the art world is, and then figure out how do I want to behave within that art world? in order to gain what I want to achieve from it and have the life and lifestyle that I want. Because I think making art is as much as, of a lifestyle as it is about making objects. And that was something I learned really early on. Like being an artist isn't just making stuff in your studio. Being an artist is talking about art with people like you and I are doing right now. Oh no, I came to being an artist because I liked the lifestyle. I wanted the lifestyle, so I had to make something to be, be able to participate. <laughs> exactly. So, well, think of like what other field can you be in where like the the way of interacting with people is usually a cocktail party. 
I mean, you know, there's and I am not, I don't have the body to be a stripper. So like, this is really <laughs> my only option. Well, it's, it's just, it's just really interesting. And think about that. Okay. Think about our art world up until March was based on in-person communication and cocktail parties, essentially. What do you do when you can't meet in person and you can't have a cocktail party anymore? You gotta actually figure out how to sell and present artwork when it's not about the event or the booze. Oh, don't kid yourself. All those boozy parties that nobody actually buys work at those boozy parties. Those are just places to network. That there's no sales or monetary transactions occurring when alcohol is flowing. So no, it's, those are, those are just networks. Well, and to your point, like, let's say you go to an opening at a gallery. Well, they've already pre-sold to the, many of the collectors who aren't going to be at that opening. The collectors don't want to come to the opening because they don't want you to know who they are. And they don't want to be accosted by a bunch of artists at the opening. So they don't go, they go and they come in a private appointment and they go to the back room and they see something not in the show and they buy that. I mean, I sold out of the back room at the gallery. We we sold very little comparatively from the show that was on in the main show. The second floor was like work by other artists in the back room. And that's almost entirely where we sold from. Oh, yeah. Everybody wants the, the special piece, the exclusive piece, yeah. the, the back room deal. That Nobody wants the thing that anybody can buy or see. Like that's just not as exotic and not as special. Well, and right after the show comes down, that same piece that was downstairs in the front show that didn't sell is now in the upstairs and in the back room and now feels very special. That's right. You know? And so it, it's interesting. I think we're going to see some big shifts happen. I'm not, I, I can't say exactly where they're going, but we have been in an art world that was very event-based and commodity-based and entertainment-based. And when you can't do any of those three things, you know, when you can't have events, you can't entertain in large scale or have people into your large scale venue, how are we going to share art? How are people going to access it? How are artists going to make it? And I think we're going to see some pretty creative ways to address that. I went to the uh, Miami this past December for Art Basel for the art fair and many satellite art fairs. And it was the first time I'd been to a fair in a long time. I kind of went to art fairs in the beginning. And then I just was like, uh, art fairs, like it's a trade show for art. Like I don't want to go to that. Right. But then in that time period, essentially what happened is art fairs completely came to dominate the sales side of the art market. And that is what precipitated in addition to the recession in 2008, us losing so many galleries because no one's buying art in a gallery like they used to. Not no one. Fewer people are buying art in brick and mortar galleries than they used to. More and more people will go to an art fair and buy art there. More and more people will buy inexpensive art online. Now, even people will buy at auction online in the millions. And so that art world is very different than what you and I are existing in or most artists I'm working with on the daily, right? But it is, it is an influence on the other art worlds that exist. 
I think that the art art fair essentially not being able to exist at all in the way that it did for probably a year and a half or more is going to drastically change the, the field of art fairs. And I hope drastically empower some new mode of gallery. We can all hope. Well, yeah, because what what you see at an art fair is kind of like, it's a group show, okay? Like, unless it's a booth that's a solo artist, you're basically going from group show to group show of hot hits from each thing, and it can be presented incredibly beautifully, but that's what it is. You cannot develop an artist's voice, show the breadth of their work, show the evolution of their work. In that context, it's very difficult to build an artist's conversation in that space. And so there is still this incredible need for the solo show of the individual artist. And that's what we need to get to is that the showing of the authentic, real work in a way where I'm going to really understand what the artist is communicating. I can get into their headspace and their career. I can follow what they're doing and I can be part of it. You really can't do that in an art fair context. And so we have to figure out what is that next side because the brick and mortar gallery model of, as a business model does not work anymore. There are not enough art sales at the mid and low level markets to support a gallery getting a 50% commission only if they sell work. That model of commission only income doesn't work in the arts anymore, unless you're blue chip. So basically what I'm seeing is like for someone like myself, a couple of years ago, before all of this exploded, I, when I decided to launch my advisory, I specifically did not open a gallery. Did not open a brick and mortar gallery. What would I love to do? I'd love to have my own gallery space. I'd love to show the artists I want to show. I would love to create the program of artists that I am really proud of. That would never sell. Yeah. I mean, do I think that that business model works anymore? No. So why would I begin a business in a business model that is no longer applicable? And what I've seen shift in just the since March, <laughs> even, is that the shift to more of an advisory or art dealer model for curating, exhibiting artists, selling artists' work is becoming more and more the norm and acceptable. Like think about every exhibition that was supposed to be seen in person in March was seen online. There was created some kind of online way to consume it. Many art fairs went to a completely online model. That means if you are not a brick and mortar gallery, it doesn't matter. No one's going to your brick and mortar gallery. You could bring artists to an art fair without a brick and mortar gallery. You can curate projects without a brick and mortar gallery. But that gets back to the problem. Artists need a gallery to show their work in. (laughs) So I think that's where, again, it kind of comes back to the artist being proactive. The fact that there are fewer and fewer venues, fewer galleries, there are going to be even fewer museums. How are you going to rise to the top 
of where you want to go, right? You have to you have to be proactive because I feel like all of the things that used to be there that would be a possible way to rise up, they've, those pillars have sort of all fallen away. You don't have the gallery, you don't have the same funders, you don't have the museums showing anyone from their own regions. You don't, you know, so it's a difficult landscape. And so in order to be successful, I feel like you really do have to take control of it to the extent that you can. It's, it's really frustrating though, to your point, like you, you have to allow yourself those frustrating moments and then keep on because it's important. What you have to say as an artist is important. Your work getting out there is important. You need to take the steps to get it out there because no one's gonna just like invite you or throw you a line like we all, grew up, you know, and, and in the art world thinking. And I think too, when you and I were in grad school, there was a very different paradigm. Like all of our professors basically became bigger artists even before the MFA program even was a thing. Think of how many fewer artists there were before the MFA boom, right? Oh, the, but there's just, there are too many people that use the word artist these days like it's i personally wish there was another word that could be used to differentiate sort of i know it sounds bad but like levels of professionalism let's say because like too many like the the word artist is too general like i mm -hmm. wish there was a bit more specificity to it like you know i mean to a certain extent you know even like amateur artists professional artists like just like some extra little thing to like know whether somebody's taking it seriously or not but that's just me it's very interesting from many organizations that i've worked in and being in philadelphia there are a lot of artist collectives here and th that's a very interesting kind of thing for philadelphia and for other cities where artists would band together into a collective and make a lot happen for themselves. And so that was big in the seventies here. And there are some it's big here in Europe right now. Yeah. Okay. And still here now. And I think what I see a lot of, and it's not, not just here, but all over the United States is people who are retired, who become artists after they retire because they always wanted to be an artist or they were an artist and stopped doing it for X period of time, and then came back to it. So that, that kind of artist, there are many, many of now. That kind of artist is also, there's a huge contingent of them who are taking it very seriously and take it like a second career. So that floods the playing field with a whole lot of mature artists who are you know, actually really trying to do something. So that I think is a newer phenomenon. You didn't used to see people trying to be a professional artist at 70. No, not really. No, I mean like they would make art, but they weren't trying to like professionalize that. But there's also now of course the Instagram artists and then there's all, you know, all the other kinds of YouTube artists and all these people. I mean, it's just like, I, I have a disdain also for the fact that like the word curate has now been sort of usurped <laughs> by social media and, and the cure the, the, to curate your life is now a thing instead of to be an art curator. Right. I, I, it's just, it's totally pedantic, totally s subjective or s totally, um, 
uh, let's see, it's pedantic and it's it's just it's it's silly is all it is. But I mean, <laughs> but it's it's just the point of like I just wish there was a little bit more descriptive terminology to sort of differentiate. You know, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for even saying this out loud, but like hobbyist from professionals. Well, but you know, I think I think that comes down to the mindset of the person doing it, and and I think that's where you'll have an art. Like I'll meet an artist who's been making art for thirty years, and they still don't feel valid to call themselves an artist. And that might be valid. Well, yeah. Well, and other people <laughs> who've been who've taken two classes and are like, I'm an artist. Oh my God. I met right? this one guy when I, I I was, God, what was I? It was just out of undergrad. And I met this guy. He literally, photographer, uh-huh. he literally went up to the main photographic workshops. He took one workshop and just went, yeah, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And he just started taking pictures. Don't get me wrong. He made shit photographs. He was a, <laughs> he was a stock photographer. That's all he did. But within two years of taking that one workshop, he was earning a million dollars profit annually. Wow. Well, he was giving people what they wanted. And that's right. I mean, he just did absolute bare bones, like most basic fundamental stock images and he sold millions. But that gets to our point of you can sell a lot of work, but that doesn't make your work important. Don't get me wrong. He will never be known in the the history of the art world as anything other than a stock photographer, if that's even a thing that will be remembered. But I mean, there, you know, there are just different aspirations and I, I doubt that he is still able to do it because of course stock photography has fallen off the deep end in his own right. So that's a different issue completely. Well, I think it's interesting. I think that there, there is a huge number of artists in the field right now. And I think that yeah, and I think that makes it really difficult for those of us who are taking it seriously for a long time. But I also think that that's probably true of every many fields, and where we have now YouTube or Instagram or these different mediums, if you will, that people are using. I kind of think. That's like any new medium where everyone thinks it's BS when it first comes out. And then all of a sudden it's actually a, like new genres is a perfect example. Like, you know, I took, I took several critique seminars in new genres, even though I was a photography student, because I wanted a critique seminar with people who are also non photographers and had a more conceptual kind of way of thinking of things. And so I always took both a, a photo crit where they knew how to talk about photography and then a new genres class where they just talked about art with a capital A. But there were a lot of mediums there that at the time people were like, this is bullshit. This isn't an actual artistic medium. And, you know, so I kind of think what you're saying with with the, the Instagram comment, I thought was it's really interesting because I actually did meet a young artist at a show. It was at a gallery. It was a tiny gallery, but it was a solo show. And the work was really interesting. And I went up and I talked to the artist. It's like, wow, this is you know, really interesting. Do you, you know, do you have a card? Like, can I check, you know, can I have your card, your business card? Like, so I can look up your website. And they're like, oh, I don't have a card. And I was like, well, what's your website? And like, oh, I don't have a website. I, you can just go on my Instagram. And I was like, you don't have a card. You don't have a website. What the hell is this? How do you have a show? when you have nothing around but like basically posting on Instagram. 
But it was really interesting to see that is very common for younger artists. Yeah, yeah. We're just we're just old. Well, what, we what it is is they are also not they are also not like yet really professionalized. They have like, yeah, got some good work. It's out there, but like I'm not really doing this professionally yet. And it was interesting to me. So I think that that's something that's shifting in undergraduate art education. You know, when we went to school, especially where we went, if you talked about money ever, yeah, that was the kiss of death. You were, you couldn't be, and the lowest of the low is talking about money, right? Everything was high art conceptual. And I was really glad for that because there's so few situations like that. However, we all got out of there with no way to make any money, no idea how to navigate the art world. And to your point, no help unless you were the personal assistant of one of the professors. I just went to a museum exhibition not two weeks ago and the artist was there and we were talking and I said, oh, by the way, how much does this piece cost? This is a solo exhibition of her work. And she's like, oh, we don't talk about those kinds of things. The artist said like, that? Yeah. And I'm like, well, then how do you live? Like, wait, I just, I just asked you if I can buy that piece basically. And you yeah. refused to answer me. I was just like, what is going on? Wow. It's very weird. That's really interesting because, you know, I think I think the the theme of your podcast and I think of what a lot of the conversations you have with people reveals that there are so many different ways to see the art world and exist within it that it's it's like you have to figure out what parts are helpful to you that you can use in your trajectory and fundamentally what's going to make you satisfied and happy with that because it's like let's say tomorrow you started making a ton of money doing stock photography never happened but go on but if it did you would still feel like your art your 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 personal work you still have aspirations for that even though you're paying all your bills and then some with your stock photography and like that's the critical difference right Right. Well, I mean, when I title these podcasts, I always put what the person does first mm -hmm. because I feel like basically the people who are listening, like if they're a certain level or a certain um, position in the arts world, they'll want to hear from XYZ. So like somebody who's an right. artist might want to hear from a gallerist. So they'll listen to the ones that say gallerist in the beginning. Right. If they're gallerist, maybe they're looking for new artists and they might look for, at the artists that are on there. You know, if they're curators, they might look to the museum people. So like the, the first yeah. thing I put in the titles of them is like, I don't expect any single person to listen to every single episode of this podcast right. because depending on where what they do and where they are in their career they think that they will get different insights from theoretically let's say people above them in the, right. in the, the, the system and so the, the i don't think anybody's going to listen to everything i think people are going to listen to people they think are somehow above them in whatever either age or quality or the the, the system of like gal artists to gallery to institutions so Correct. i mean you know that's part of this whole thing is, is that there's so much more to all of this than 
even I knew, and I thought I understood how this all worked before I started this podcast. And <laughs> I, yeah. I've gotten, well, I didn't really, that's why I titled it the wise fool. I, I mean, I sort of, I thought I knew, but I also knew enough to know that I didn't know. Right. And there's so much more to it than I even thought there was. I mean, I ended up talking to like, you know, art advisors who just advise collectors and that's all they do. So like right. just a person who basically is the advisor for a, a collector or a collection. And that, mm -hmm. that, I mean, who knew that was a profession? I didn't know that was a profession. Right. I would love to do that. I would love to just work for some guy who just, or lady or couple or whatever foundation that has a ton of money and just go out and buy really good artwork for them. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, I actually know someone here who does that, and it's a pretty fabulous job. But guess what? There's a lot that comes with being the right hand to a collector or to an institution, things like that. So I, I think you're very smart to have a lot of people from different aspects of this, because for me, what I felt like was each level I got to in the art world, either as an artist or also as a curator, an administrator, a gallerist, etc. With each level, I felt like I pulled back a different curtain. I, I literally feel that artists, if they could put themselves, do more what you just said people don't do, which is as an artist, instead of just coming in and listening to what a gallerist has to say, listen to what the collector has to say. Listen to what the legacy planner has to say. Listen to what the museum curator has to say. Because you can't know what you don't know, right? And like most things, we are have completely convinced ourselves of something that's not real as, as reality in the art world. And then once you sort of get past that level, you're like, oh. And then you can avail yourself of this new level of knowledge. And then the next one. So it was like, Becoming a gallery director of a for-profit gallery, what an eye-opener to the money side of the art world. Then moving to be a curator in a nonprofit organization, working with artists of all mediums, what an education on having sales be absolutely immaterial and exhibiting and promoting their work being 100% of the game. And what a great learning experience for me as an artist to facilitate big projects for artists in many mediums. I curated something like 70 shows when I was at that organization. And talk about cutting my teeth as a, as a curator and getting really, really good at putting artists work together in a way that's meaningful and figuring out how to pull off really extensive large scale artworks. I then went from that to becoming executive director and chief curator of an art organization with a $1.5 million annual budget. Totally different situation. I had now going from a four-person organization to having 70 teaching artists, 15 staff members, 25 board members, blah, 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 right? Then you realize, oh my God, this next tier of the art world, this is where all the donors, all of the collectors actually reside. <laughs> These are the people I now have to ask for money for my organization, for my artists. And now I went from the for-profit gallery where it was all about money to the nonprofit organization as a curator where it wasn't about money at all. 
back to still being a nonprofit and it's all about the money again, right? Yep. So that was a huge eye opener because then you understand how the money in the art world actually works, who gets funded by funders and why, what you have to say to funders to get their money, what you then have to do to carry out their grant to get that money. Then I decide there is a much larger art world out there than this. I want to know more about that. That's when I stepped out to start a for-profit advisory and to become a fine art appraiser because the appraisal side is all about value also, okay? When you appraise a work of art, you're saying, what is its monetary value? Not what is its value, what is its monetary value? And this is especially the part of the art world that I think as artists, we are completely clueless about. You think prices, and so does the general public, like it's completely arbitrary, right? Ish. Yeah, it's not. So for example, when, what, when, when I came into the appraisal world, what I realized is to be an appraiser, in order to come to an understanding of what the monetary value is for something, you need to know its quality, its rarity, its historical significance, its current cultural significance. What is the stature of that artist? How does this work of art fit into their oeuvre? How is their, has their work been published? Has this particular piece been in any publications? Has it been exhibited? Where has it been exhibited? So what I realized is, oh my gosh, all of the scholarship and knowledge that I thought was gone from the art world is in the appraising. It is so ironic. Because when you think about it, you have to know all of those non-monetary signifiers of value in order to determine what is the monetary value, which essentially means what someone is willing to pay for that. Hmm. In a market where there is a willing buyer and a willing seller, what is the price that that work will sell for? That is what value is in, a, in an appraisal context. So it's not what will you charge, it's what will someone pay. Oh yeah, yeah we, we knew that. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, but it's very interesting and that's where then to look at a work of art in its context, work at a, look at a work of art in someone's entire trajectory and to see why does a collector who's interested in that particular genre want that piece by that artist? Why is it twice as expensive as a piece that looks similar but was done 20 years later and isn't part of that body of work? So what was so interesting to me is it actually bolstered the value of artwork and artists for me. And it, and it makes it so that when I look at any artist's work, I can put that appraisal lens on it, which is how do I talk about this artwork's value, this artist's value, and elevate it to the highest level possible. And how do I do that with scholarly documentation, with research, with not only seeing documentation of that, but seeing it in the world, going to an art fair and seeing that piece at this art fair and that art fair and knowing it didn't sell at either art fair. That says something about the value of that piece, for example. And to your point, People don't publish the prices of work. 
So if you're trying to value a, an artwork by a living artist that is existing right now, how do you find out the price? You can't just call and be like, how much does that cost? You have to actually go out and find where it has been documented with that price. You have to actually call a gallery and ask them what the prices are for things. It's like that weird answer you got from her. You know what the real answer was? You need to talk to the gallerist because she's going to negotiate a price with you. Oh, no. She ended up giving me the price in the end. All right. Well, then that was just bad business, the way that she yes. was doing that. That was silly. But it was, it was very interesting to me. And I found that I was able to then learn so much about different art movements, history of art, to understand just what you were saying. You know how you can't do that for yourself? You're like, how do I fit in the cultural artistic landscape? Why is my work important? How is it relevant? When you are appraising a work, that's what you're doing. You're contextualizing it. You're using all of the history, the sales, the publications, the exhibitions, and how does that bring to bear more value on that particular work of art? So when you start to think about the money and the value that way, it changes your thinking about these big numbers. And as an artist, instead of resenting hearing a big number, that an artist is getting for their work and be like, why am I not waking that money? Why is Jeff Koons getting $10 million for a piece and I get a hundred bucks? That's bullshit, right? No, it isn't. Jeff Koons has a market that is, has all agreed that his work is valuable. Therefore, when they trade it between each other and sell it, they add value to it in that regard. And it continues to have that relationship. So I think like once I understood more how the market works and how value is arrived at and how value is built and maintained, I felt like, again, a whole curtain was pulled back where I did not resent not understanding all of that. I felt like, oh, there's a system here. Things work as this system works. It's not arbitrary. <laughs> It's not just someone throws a number out there. I mean, and and so I don't know. I feel like we can, once we have more knowledge, we can also be more understanding of the different players in this field that we're in and not only have more respect for other artists, but also for other people working in the field. There's a big dynamic with artists where they kind of feel, sometimes feel like the gallery is is doing something like in, is in conflict with them. The gallery is trying to take something from them. Where do they get off taking 50% of the cost of my work? Or I don't feel that. I've worked in galleries. Well, I understand you've worked in what. A gallery. Yeah. yeah. See, once you work in a gallery, you understand that you can barely get by on that 50%. Mm -hmm. And that you work your ass off as the gallery for that 50%. From an artist's perspective, very often they don't have that idea. And they kind of come in this adversarial. That's just inexperience. I mean, totally. if you, that, that's all that is. Totally. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me time and listening to what I had to say. I really appreciate it.